Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Marketing and Outreach. Joining me is my special co-host for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast, the history episode. From time to time, we do history-focused episodes of the Proceedings Podcast. So joining me, it's only right that we would have the Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine, Eric Mills. Eric, how are you? Hello, Ward. Good to see you again. So you sur- survived Tropical Storm, whatever it is, Isaiah. Isaiah. I think there are five syllables in the way you pronounce yeah. that, but yes, I survived it as well. Isaiah-I-A-I, <laughs> whatever. Um, so yeah, it, ca- it came through here pretty quick, fortunately, so it's actually uh, sunny outside now, right, here in the greater Annapolis area. No harm, no foul. I had a little flooding in my basement that we discovered, oh, by the way, when we we're going to go down and do an online uh, Pilates class. <laughs> we're like, hey, our basement's flooding. <laughs> uh, maybe we shouldn't do this uh, online Pilates class. Um, so anyway, yeah, so we caught it before there was any damage to the engineered hardwood down there. The beauty of having a, a basement here near the, uh, uh, city dock area. But, uh, in any case, we're fine now. So what's going on, uh, in, in your world there, Eric? Well, we just cleared the boards on the, uh, September, October issue of Naval History. We're really excited about this when, uh, everybody will be getting it when it comes out in a few weeks. And, uh, it's our end of war, end of World War II special package. It's, um, chock full of good material. Um, so stay tuned for that. And there'll be more podcasts, um, as the months go ahead coming from there as well. Very cool. So, uh, and we'll remind the audience that hasn't yet seen the special Greyhound issue of naval history uh, to check that one out. If you haven't seen the movie, um, definitely need to check that one out. I really loved it, even though I watched it on my phone. Um, first time I've seen a blockbuster on my iPhone, um, and I was riveted. You know, it was amazing. Uh, you know, and that was a guts call that you know first Sony sold it to Apple TV. I think Apple TV did very well from a business standpoint, but you could see that in turn Paramount and Tom Cruise and some other. Uh, people who are sitting on blockbusters right now waiting us to get back to quote-unquote normal have said we're pushing it to the right six months 10 months 12 Mm -hmm. months so top gun maverick isn't coming out now till the earliest july of next summer and another movie that i guess cost 200 million to make that i don't don't know anything about called tenure uh, is also not coming out till uh till next summer those are two Mm -hmm. paramount uh, movies um and you know what's interesting about Paramount? Here's a little Hollywood trivia for you, Eric. Um, do you know what the answer is? I don't know the question yet. The, okay. Well, I'll just give you the answer because the, the question would be the answer. It's the only exactly. Hollywood okay. studio that's still in Hollywood proper. The others are over the hill in Burbank. Um, that's where Warner Brothers and Sony and Universal are. Um, so I know this from my two years I spent in Hollywood um, a couple of years ago when I was at uh, another military web property um, right there in uh, in the Hollywood Hills. And we actually went to uh, the premiere of 13 Hours. Remember that movie with uh, the oh, yeah. Jim from The Office, right? John Krasinski. Um, we actually went to a, a premiere on the Paramount lot there. So that's useless trivia as we're talking about Greyhound. Um, and the point is, if you haven't seen it yet, you should watch it. And again, it was featured prominently. And kudos to you for making an, an in-close call for the editorial direction we were going to take on that issue of the magazine. Um, I, I think Bill and I have mentioned that before on the show, um, and you made the right call. 
um, based on uh, some jump balls there. So uh, that was a great strategic move. So once again, thank you. Well done on that front. All right. Thank you. I when I speak to Marine Corps audiences when I wear my outreach hat among the uh, many hats I wear here. So if I'm at the Expeditionary Warfare School or the Basic School, I have a slide in my presentation because when you talk to a Marine about the Naval Institute, they're all like, "Oh, that's Navy," and they'll and you say proceedings, and they'll go, "Well, we have Marine Corps Gazette." And so I'm quick to point out that the heritage of proceedings and the Naval Institute vis-a-vis the Marine Corps is very rich. And the high vis starts with the guy we're going to talk about today, uh, who is the commandant of the Marine Corps at that time, uh, who was a major general, not a four-star. He was Major General John A. Lejeune, or pronounced Lejeune, I guess, if you're a Marine Corps purist. So joining us today is Mark Fulz, who wrote the article in, is this the current issue of Naval History, Eric? Right, the current July-August issue, the Greyhound issue. Um, and so, Mark, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Speaking of movies, I think they should make a movie about Lejeune. Uh, maybe a, maybe a mini series. maybe HBO will pick it up. I'm thinking maybe Robert De Niro should play him. Ooh, that'd yeah. be good. That'd be I'm, good. I'm open to, I'm open to suggestions. Yeah, he kind of uh, has the look, right? If you just combed his hair forward, he could pull it a off a little bit. I think the the older he gets, the uglier he gets, and I think <laughs> that is fitting. Um, Lejeune, I have lots of good things to say about the man. He was not handsome. I don't know. I don't know. He's got kind of a rugged, good looks thing going on, you know. Very. Um, yeah, he, he he does. Uh, him and a lot of Marines back then were had that rugged look. Smedley Butler had a very similar kind of rugged uh, uh, kind of look to his face. Yeah. And um, I mean, it was a later era, but Chesty Puller also had kind of a rugged look, right? That same. Was kind of what they yeah, there's a, the same thing. Yeah, yeah, we're talking about the same thing here. They sort of, yeah. uh, they dug the rugged look there in the Marine Corps. So anyway, Mark, welcome. Where are you calling us from or where are you here on the, uh, the, the video chat from? Where are you in the okay. world? I am in my kitchen in Alexandria, Virginia. I would be in my basement office, but like you, uh, my basement office flooded a couple of weeks ago. The um, apparently there was a power outage during one of the storms. The power outage tripped the uh, wall, the uh, wall socket that the uh, sump pump was plugged into. So the sump pump, I think, overflowed and uh, got down in the basement. So the basement hasn't been put together just yet i'm it's a lot of rain today so i'm going down there periodically to check the sump pump see if it's working so far it's working uh, but i'm in alexandria i heard you guys had like a tornado warning this morning we did oh, yeah yeah okay we didn't actually have a tornado surprised. but we had all the conditions we had wow. tornado warnings here in, in annapolis fortunately no no tornadoes not that i saw eric are you aware of any tornadoes I know that um, Queenstown, a few miles up from where I am on the eastern shore, um, a, a car was lifted into the air this morning. I hope it didn't touch the golf course. Don't leave the golf course alone. <laughs> yeah, maybe it stayed in the outlets parking lot. We'll, we'll hope for the best there. But. Well, so speaking of golf courses, we're all over the map here. Eventually, we're going to get to Mark's article. Um, but <laughs> the Naval Academy golf course was supposed to reopen today after a year-plus renovation. Um, and I will say I was supposed to be on the first tee time. Um, and that was today was canceled and tomorrow was canceled because the greenskeeper thought it would be flooded. So the reopening is now on Thursday. So 
that's the sum total of the tragedy to me is my tea time was canceled this morning as a function of the uh, tropical storm. So postponed, not canceled. Postponed. postponed. Good point. Yes. I will be out there as Delayed soon as possible. Yes. Now we've been yeah. paying dues the whole time that the course has been closed. So everybody's champing at the bit um, to get oh, back out there. Yeah. So anyway, it looks great. You know, it was uh, overseen by uh, the same company that did the Riviera on the West Coast uh, renovation and our good friend and Annapolis favorite son, Billy Hurley, who's an Academy grad and a PGA Tour professional is, is uh, you know, a member of our course. And he was uh, pretty much the guy who, who made sure the member membership understood that it was necessary. Uh, the course was up, up for a facelift and it got it. So we're, we're excited. So anyway, well, Eric, over well, to you to start on storms. If we're speaking of storms, I have kind of a, a, a John A. Lejeune storm story. Yeah. So, a relevant so topic. So Lejeune was the class of 88. He was the Naval Academy class of 88. You guys might be familiar with this uh, story, but some of the listeners might not be. He's class of 88 back then. Once you finished your four years of being a midshipman of the Naval Academy, you had the privilege of going on a two-year cruise before you got your commission. Um, so imagine instead of, going, instead of being a midshipman for four years, you're a midshipman for six. So anyway, he's the class of 88, but he's not going to get pinned until 1890. He goes on his two-year cruise. On, in, in 1889, he is, a, he is on the USS Vandalia. And the USS Mandalia is sent out to the Pacific Islands of Samoa uh, to be a part of it, an international expedition out there to you know, rectify some issues that are going on between the island and its parent country and all that other kind of stuff. The German Navy is there. There's some British uh, uh, ships there, uh, and there's some U.S. ships there as well. Midshipman Lejeune is there on the USS Mandalia. He's, he's, while he's on the ship, he's getting to know some of the Marines on the ship and he's getting quite enamored with them and he's starting to like them. And he's starting to think about becoming a Marine instead of a Naval officer. A huge storm comes out of nowhere and wipes out the entire fleet. He Lejeune spends a, a couple of solid days just clinging to dear life on this ship. It is, he almost loses his life. Several sailors and a few Marines actually do lose their life on the Vendor. They get swept overboard. Um, the fleets in the Harbor are really, really damaged bad. And he somehow survives this thing. Um, and legend has it, that's one of the, him being on that ship and surviving that storm was one of the reasons why he decided to become a Marine and not a Naval officer. Wow. <laughs> wow. I have never heard that. That's amazing. Legend has it. There are other reasons why he became a Marine, but that, that's probably one of them. Um, he probably didn't want to live through another one of those ever again. So, but, but the joke was on him and that Marines are on ships a lot. So avoiding yes. storms yes. is not necessarily part of the program. Yes, that's true. And and like many Marines of his day, he's going to spend a lot of time on ship as an officer. He's so you, you, you know, among the things that convinced me not to go Marine Corps, this is a serious story. Um, my midshipman first class cruise, because my father was a Marine. And so I was interested in going Marine Corps. So I did what was called the Marine option cruise. It was mm -hmm. a longer summer cruise between my junior and senior year, my final summer as a midshipman. So we jumped on amphibs in San Diego and we rode them to Pearl. And this was the Mew that was about to go on cruise. And so I was on an LST, if you remember mm -hmm. that class. Mm -hmm. LST 1185, the Schenectady. So these LSTs were... Narrow beam, flat bottom, very little draft, had a derrick arm on the front, the most unseaworthy craft you've ever seen. 
So as soon as we mm-hmm. cleared Point Loma, we started doing 45 degree snap rolls and we did those for the next 10 days. Um, it was the most miserable time of my maritime life. And so ironically, that only con- that not only convinced me not to go surface warfare, it convinced me not to go Marine Corps. Um, and I, <laughs> I, I decided to go Navy Air at that point uh, because my eyes were, I was in 2020, I, I went Naval Flight Officer and wound up being a Tomcat guy. But um, yeah. that, that was sort of the iterative way, not unlike General Lejeune, that I decided not to go Marine Corps. So, right. <laughs> although we had a blast, we were out in Kaneohe. So we were out there for a month at Kaneohe, hung out with the recon guys. We flew H-46s. We rode in the backseat of an F-4. They were really hands-on. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I love the Marine Corps, um, but you just have to identify whether or not you are yourself actually a Marine. And so I'm at peace yes. with the fact that I am not. My father <laughs> was, my brother was, my son is, I am not. So anyway, I'm sorry, that's a little segue there. Um, so, Mark, let's talk about your article here. Um, okay. And, and uh, uh, as you say he's well known for shifting, and, and it has a cool title in that it's the re-evolutionary tenure and the R is in parentheses, well-known for shifting the Marine Corps focus to advanced-based warfare. He deserves credit for elevating the service's prestige among the American public. So talk to us about that. Well, the title, I have to thank the editors for that. I was having a hard time trying to pick a title, and they, and they picked a really good one, the, the revolutionary tenure of Commandant Lejeune. Uh, and let me say before I get started, um, I think the last podcast I was on, I had to mention this too. I say Lejeune. I'm aware that people say Lejeune. I've heard some people say Lejeune. I don't mean any offense to anyone. When I grew up in the Marine Corps, it was Lejeune. I didn't hear someone say Lejeune until 2013, and I was in the Marine Corps from 2002 to 2006. Yeah, so, no, I agree. I Thank just, you for saying I, that, because I'm in I the same Lejeune. boat. I went to high school. I lived on Cherry Point. We played Camp Lejeune all the time. And when I heard this sort of thing about Lejeune, it seemed so contrived to me. Right. Yeah. So I agree. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. I, I'm familiar with the research behind it. I'm, I, and I mean, no disrespect to the family, but until there's recording found of someone in 1920 talking to Commandant Lejeune saying, hey, nice to see you, General Lejeune. Unless I hear that, I'm just going to keep calling him Lejeune. <laughs> OK. Um, so, uh, yeah, the Marine Corps, whenever you hear or, or see Lejeune come up uh, in articles on the Marine Corps Gazette, or um, uh, in, in, in biographies, or there's, there was a biography that came out recently by a guy named uh, Joe Simon. It's a very, very good book. It's the best single volume on Lejeune there is, and it's called The Greatest of All Leathernecks. Uh, very, very good account. Uh, most of these, whether it's an article or book form, really do focus on Lejeune made the Marine Corps a more modern institution. I don't like to use the word modern. It depends on how you define it. Uh, but, and, and I mean, they're right. They, he, he did institute some really important changes. He did, uh, shift the Marine Corps focus from, uh, small wars or even, you know, working with the army in these overland campaigns to, you know, amphibious warfare to operating with the fleet more specifically. Right. And he, he really took the very, very important initial steps towards getting the Marine Corps to be a weapon of the fleet, an arm of the fleet, if you will, more so than they ever were in the past. Okay, so all that's true. Uh, But who cares? Who cares outside of uh, Marines in uniform? Who cares outside of just normal, everyday uh, military historians? Uh, Not to denigrate either one of those, 
But I mean, so where did the popularity of the Marine Corps really come from? Come from, and that's kind of what I've always been interested in as a Marine Corps scholar. Is like, what is the appeal of these guys? And based on my own research uh, and my own readings, I, it's not so much that they are amphibious warfare experts. A lot of the acclaim that they have, a lot of the positive goodwill that they have, comes from the public, and that's a relationship that the Marine Corps has worked on and has fostered, uh, and has tried to build over generations. And Lejeune was one of the foundational architects of this goodwill. And that's kind of what this article is about. He, uh, Yes, he did all these things regarding getting these coast and west coast expeditionary forces ready to be ready to operate with the fleet. But he was also instrumental in taking care of uh, the public face, the public image of the Marine Corps, whether that was uh, making sure Marines were educated and because, and there's a public, there's kind of a public face to every single one of these initiatives, right? Cause whenever they institute an, an initiative like education or, um, guarding the mail or, um, you know, uh, putting the, uh, field and company grade officer schools at Quantico, no matter what it was, there was always a public relations aspect to it. As you understood that very, very well, it, it had to do with the, the, the time in which he lived. This was the 19-teens, 1920s. This was the era of big journalism in the United States. And so he's very much aware of all of that, and, and he uh, made sure that the public got a good look at what, he, at what he thought the Marine Corps should be. And it's this group of morally uh, upright, physically fit, trustworthy young men. Uh, that can go off and do all of these different things. And that's a whole other different debate. You know, what's the Marine Corps' raison d'etre? Is it uh, small wars? Is it, um, you know, serving as serving as whatever mission the president may direct? Or is it amphibious warfare? Um, it could be all of those things. Uh, but I, I, I think the raison d'etre is to have a tool belt full of tools that they can use to do different kinds of jobs. Um, and I think Lejeune saw it that way as well despite the fact that he was very, very much interested in amphibious warfare, um, he was a part of a Marine Corps that advertised itself as doing all of these different things and not just amphibious warfare. Um, so, And that was kind of the main impetus behind the article, is to show that he cared very much about the Marine Corps' public image. And more than that, he really, really cared about the Marines under him, I think. Um, I didn't really mean this as a celebratory piece of, of, of Lejeune. I, I, I wasn't out to write a piece about heritage. I th but I really do think that he cared about the quality of Marines uh, in the Marine Corps, and he cared about how they were perceived, and he cared about how the public, the level of trust between them and the American public. And not many people have mentioned that before, I don't think. Mark, I was very interested to see in your article um – his stress on educational opportunities and making yeah. those available to recruits. And he mm -hmm. even went so far as to regard the relationship between officer and enlisted as that between teacher and scholar. It's right. a fascinating thing to hear from someone who's a professional man of arms. He's a professional man of arms, but he was also a man of the progressive era. Um, and what I mean by that is one of the hallmarks of progressivism in, in America that, around this time was this idea of uplifting people. Um, it was this idea of young men and women doing activities that uplifted their lives, whether it was education or physical fitness or things of that nature. And World War I was really kind of um, a watershed moment for progressivism in that sense. I mean, you take this war that has been 
destroying generations of Europeans. And what are the, what are the Americans going to do? Join the army, join the Marine Corps, join the Navy, and we'll make a man out of you. You will benefit from being in the military. Uh, the war will make you tougher. The war will make you stronger. The war will make you smarter and more wise and all that other kind of stuff. And so that idea had a very, very strong currency uh, back then. Um, and it was pushed. That idea was pushed by people like uh, Lejeune. Uh, it's this, and, 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 he, and, he, and even, even when the war ended in 1918, you know, once we get into uh, Lejeune's commandancy, He's still going to continue that idea that, you know, the Marine Corps is going to uplift the lives of the young men that join. And one of the ways he's going to make good on that promise is through vocational education uh, for enlisted men. If enlisted men don't know how to read, they teach them how to read. If they need to work on their arithmetic, they teach them arithmetic. They, they taught them, um, you know, woodworking and mechanics and, like, and electronics and all, that, all those other kinds of things. The whole idea was it's peacetime. Come be a Marine, do your four years, uh, and when you get out, you have this education that you can use to find a job on the outside and things like that. Uh, very much a precursor to this idea of the GI Bill. Uh, but it wasn't just education for the enlistment. It was also education for officers. Obviously, um, he, he was very interested in that as well. And he had it – was, it was officers teaching the enlisted men as well. Um, so yeah, that, that really fit in with his worldview about the the purpose of the military. It's not he didn't see the military as just he saw the military as their primary mission is to win wars, right? They are they are an arm, they are an instrument of national policy. However, another one of their purposes is to uplift the lives of the people that joined, to to take these citizens and to turn them into something better once they get out. He very he he really understood that. He understood it as a way to again strengthen the goodwill between the United between the United States Marine Corps and greater society. So check me on this one, um, Mark. W World War One sort of blurred the lines, particularly in the eyes of the American public, with what's the difference between the Army and the Marine Corps. It wasn't until World War Two and the Pacific Theater and amphibious warfare that the Marines really did sort of de facto come into. Um, a personality that was differentiated inherently. So right. it's, it seems to me from reading your article and, and what I know about Lejeune is he, he was, as well as, you know, a credible military leader, he was a sort of master marketeer. Um, and, and so things like Bellowood and Devil Dogs and, and this whole um, folklore of the Marine Corps, he kind of forged it in a way that maybe it hadn't been quite organized and aggregated and uh, made an official part of their portfolio until his time, his tenure as commandant. Is that true? I think most of that is true. I think Lejeune is a part of a generation of Marines that realized how true that was. And I think um, he was commandant at a time when the Marine Corps was doing all of these things. Um, the uh, Marine Publicity Bureau, which was established in 1911, if I'm not mistaken, was a big part of, of the early efforts to get the Marine Corps before the public eye. And Lejeune, I think he was either a major or a lieutenant colonel back in 1909, 1910, 1911 time frame. Uh, he was at the Army War College at that time when the uh, publicity bureau was really starting to take off. But the thing about Marine Corps officers back then, and I think this is an interesting thing about the Marine Corps in the 1920s, very, very small. We're talking about 300, 400 officers up and down the ranks, small. 
all of these officers knew each other, or most of them did. All of these officers served with each other. They knew each other's kids. They knew their first, middle, and last names. They knew what they were publishing. They knew it, all that kind of stuff, right? And all of these officers did very, very similar things. They all did expeditionary duty at some point because that's what was really valued in the Marine Corps at that time was expeditionary duty. Okay, you're out in the field. You're out on ship. You're out doing things, right? Um, they all served on ship. They all commanded ships, ships detachments, and they all did this is the important part, and I can't emphasize this enough. They pretty much all did recruiting duty at some point during their careers. Lejeune did that too. So pretty much all of these officers have a pretty good understanding of the importance of the public image of the Marine Corps, the public reputation of the Marine Corps. So by the time Lejeune becomes commandant, uh, he has all of this military experience, combat experience. He led a division in World War I. I mean, he has all of this experience. But he also has experience with public relations. He also has experience with molding this image. Um, the Marine Corps birthday, November 10th, 1775. Well, that's the date the Marine Corps celebrates as its birthday. I think its actual birthday is like July 11th, 1798, but that's just me. Um, the birthday they celebrate is November 10th, 1775. The debate on who was the youngest service goes back to – I. Uh, Based on what I've seen, I'm, I'm not seeing this even come up until the 19-teens, 1920s, is who's the oldest service, right? Lejeune comes in and makes the Marine Corps birthday, to my knowledge, he's one of the ones that makes the Marine Corps birthday a thing, okay? When I read uh, diaries and, and uh, reports from other Marine officers in the 19-teens, whenever it comes to November 10th, nothing. They don't mention anything about the Marine Corps birthday. It's only until after Lejeune's commandancy that the Marine Corps birthday, November 10th, 1775, really becomes a special thing for the Marine Corps, right? And he has this famous uh, message, this famous you know birthday message that Marines read every year that's attributed to him. Um, when, I was at, when I was at the Naval Academy on a postdoc, and when I lived in Annapolis, I went to two Marine Corps balls, and they read the, <laughs> the Lejeune's message every time. I went to one ball when I was in the Marine Corps in 2005. They read Lejeune's message. It's still very much a thing, you know. So he was, um, he helped build upon the mystique and the popularity that the Marine Corps had gained in World War One and uh, in Haiti and the Dominican Republic around the same time. Very much so. Um, and he tried very hard to say, "Yes, we're soldiers, but we're soldiers of the sea. We're part and parcel of the Navy." He would say over and over and over again. He would constantly and consistently hitch the Marines' cart to the Navy, naturally so, for obvious reasons. Right. So that was kind of one of the ways he, he tried to differentiate them from the Army. And he had great respect for the Army. Whatever he did, the health and well-being um, of the Corps, he was onto a winning formula. Because I believe from your article, um, when he becomes the Commandant, the numbers in the Corps are way down. And in a matter of a short amount of time, suddenly they're having to turn away a huge number of um, wannabe recruits every year and he fills the ranks pretty quickly so he he got on to something pretty good there he did um and re marine recruiters around this period of time between 1900 and 1920 um the marine corps goes through some very significant changes between the end of the spanish-american war in 17 and 1898 uh and the end of world war one and a lot of it had to do with again recruiting and, pu and publicity um, the Marine Corps is finally allowed to expand to 10,000 Marines um, it, during this period of time. Uh, they're, they're able to grow. I think before the Spanish-American War, there were around 3,000 enlisted Marines, maybe 150 or so. Don't quote those exact numbers on me, but a very, very small Marine Corps. I think the, I think the, 
New York Police Department was bigger than the Marine Corps. <laughs> uh, the Marine Corps is going to grow to 6,000, 10,000, 15,000 during this period of time. Uh, because, and because the Marine Corps, the United States interests overseas are growing, right? The United States has an empire now. They're in the Philippines. They, they're, they're looking out for the, the canal and all this other kind of stuff. So the Navy's growing. When the Navy grows, the Marine Corps tends to grow. Um, and they have all these new quotas. Now what do they need? They need access to um, other places in the United States that they usually haven't had access to regarding recruiting. Traditionally, the Marine Corps was recruiting in places like Philadelphia, New York City, and Chicago. Okay. Um, now, as of 19, in, in the first decade of the 20th century, they were able to recruit, recruit out in the rural areas. A recruiter's dream was country boys. They wanted people from the rural areas, people they didn't have, people who knew how to shoot, people who they believed were tough and all that other kind of stuff. They were tired of, of recruiting people from the cities, right? Uh, and recruiters are saying this in, in their writings. So they're able to recruit out in the, um, out in the rural areas. But one of the things that they're, they're able to do, despite their quotas growing and their reach out into these other areas, they're still the smallest branch. The Army was, uh, had 100,000 troops in the early 20th century. The Navy was set around between 50 and 60,000. The Marine Corps, 10,000. Okay, it's very small. So what recruiters could do with those numbers is they can make themselves sound very elite. You know, hey, do you have what it takes to be a Marine? Because they only have so many slots. If, if they only have so many slots, and once they fill that quota, they're turning everybody away. So when you only have so many slots, you can afford to be selective. And in the process of being selective, you can, you can, um, you can be choosy. If someone has any kind of mark against them for what for whatever reason, they can just let them go. So it kind of their small quota, their small size. And their growing popularity created this image of, oh, these guys are the best. They're elite. It's really hard to get into them. If you can get into the Marine Corps and actually become a Marine, wow, you must be doing something really good. Okay, so that that really became a thing, to use a non-academic term. It, came, it really became a thing in the first two decades of the 20th century. So by the time Lejeune comes in, that's still very much a strong trend. 1920, the World War I is over. The Great War is over. Why would anybody have any interest in going in the military? Well, the Marine Corps quota shrinks again. What, what, are the, what are the numbers I put on there? So, um, yeah, I think the Marine Corps was sitting around 16,000 troops, uh, you know, right around 1920. Um, he needed to – they had the numbers to fill those back up. Um, and they, I, I talk about this, the recruiting things that they did with the, uh, the, the, the roving Marines and all of that. It made the Marine Corps seem really, really good, uh, and recruiters are in this position where they're turning people away again because they're small, and that feeds and that kind of reinforces their elitist image. Yeah, the exact numbers, Mark, uh, are you say when he took office, the Marine Corps increased from 16,000 and changed men to more than 22,000. Right. Uh, and then you, you, as you just said, recruiters had to turn away many more than they accepted. In 1920, the Corps took only 12,588 enlistees out of 51,000 plus total applicants. Um, yep. Two years later, it was 9,400, 9,500 out of 53,000, just shy of 53,000, and about 9,000 out of about the okay. same number, 50,000, for the fiscal year right. ending in June of 1923. So this is, you know, if, if I'm a business guy or if I'm the end strength dude, this trend is really impressive. You know, this is uh, yeah. this is what Lejeune did on his watch. 
Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Um, and those, those numbers were very, very important to Lejeune. I mean, this is kind of another reason why I wanted to write this article is because you know, there's this idea that Lejeune comes in and he's laser focused on amphibious warfare. It's not true. He was actually laser focused on recruiting and being focused on recruiting means you're focused on public, um, public attention, uh, public affairs, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and you know, why did that matter? So the, when he came in, the Marine Corps was sitting at around 16,000, they were funded for up to 22,000. They just didn't have the Marines to meet that. They just, they just didn't have enough Marines to fill those quotas yet. Now this is very, very important for a very, very small branch of the military because, um, if they don't have enough men, they can't fulfill all of their different missions. Around this period of time, they're supposed to, they're they're forming. They have been ordered to form East and West Coast Expeditionary Forces to serve with the fleet. They are serving with the Navy as ships detachments all over the place. They're guarding naval property. Uh, they're getting sent out on other weird stuff to like guard mail, for example. And if they don't have enough Marines to do this, they're not going to be able to complete the mission. If they can't complete the mission, they're going to start getting the reputation that they're not reliable and that you can't depend on them. They're not faithful. That kind of thing. So these numbers meant a lot. If you couldn't meet these numbers, you couldn't do your mission. Um, and if you couldn't do your mission, then why even have a Marine Corps if you can't do what we need you to do? This was crucially important for Lejeune. These numbers were – he took this very, very seriously. Never mind amphibious warfare and all. We'll get to that. I got to get this Marine Corps manned first. That's what that, – and he was you – know, that's what was most important at first. And it's going to remain important for the rest of his time that he's in. And the, the war for talent at this time was – acute because this is pre-depression right so there were you know young people had the options 20s, baby yeah the roaring 20s right so who wants to be a dork in the army or the marine corps when you can be out you know doing your thing uh with the beboppers or whatever they called it back then the flappers right, right. you want to hang out in harlem and and play your trumpet and and all the fun stuff that was happening in that era it was a you know it was a pretty social time um, so the right. military was kind of out of fashion. We, you know, as a guy who served in, let's just call it the war between the wars, that's why being part of an expeditionary force. And if you, again, differentiate the Marine Corps from the army in this way, where the Marine Corps is an expeditionary force, the army is a garrison force. Um, and so you can say, Hey, if you want to go where the action is, we fight the war between the wars. The Marine Corps is engaged in kinetic stuff around the, it's not a full up war, but you know, if you want to pull a trigger in anger, you better join the Marine Corps and not the Army. If you're in the Army, you're going to be hanging out at Fort Sill, bored out of your mind, right? So, again, that's a recruiting pitch. Another thing that I thought was very interesting, and I was just at Gettysburg. Um, I was up there for a dock diving event, a dog dock diving event, and we drove right through the battlefield to get to the, the site. And on our way back, we did a shorty version of the, uh, the car tour, and then we listened to if you go up YouTube there, the park rangers have a 10-part series that really is very cool um, that explains the battle, of, the three days of the Battle of Gettysburg. But I see here with great interest that General Lejeune liked to use Marines to recreate the battles uh, as full-up training. Talk to us about that. In 1920, 21, 22, 23, the Marine Corps East, uh, East uh, Expeditionary Force, which is comprised of the 5th and 6th Marines at the time, are going to reenact the Battle of Antietam. They're going to re reenact the Battle of the Wilderness. They're going to reenact the, uh, Gettysburg, and then they're going to reenact. I'm blanking on the fourth one. Um, they're going to reenact uh, four in a row, essentially. And what this was, this did several things. One, 
it gave Marines an opportunity to do something. Um, it, it, so, in, for example, the first one was the reenactment of the Battle of the Wilderness. It involved taking the entire uh, East Coast Expeditionary Force and marching from Quantico out past Fredericksburg, out to the woods near Chancellorsville and all that other kind of stuff, right? It was a long march, okay? Uh, it involved a lot of, it involved reenacting the battle with modern weapons using planes and artillery and all that other kind of stuff and mock battles and all that other kind of stuff. Basically, the Marine Corps is uh, using the, these battles as um, uh, military exercise, military problems, right? And it, it, was, it was pretty good training for a lot of Marines there. However, the training was only half the story. The other part of the story was, and again, I can't emphasize this enough, publicity. Publicity, publicity, publicity. When Butler is outlining this idea of, of, of sending the Marines out to the, and reenacting this battle, from the very beginning, the idea was to invite all of the congressmen Invite the White House, invite the judiciary branch, the legislative branch, invite all their wives and kids and cousins and nephews and have them come on out and watch the Marine Corps do these things. It's, it's kind of like an air show, but with Marines on the ground. It's, it's this big, huge public event and people can bring their picnic baskets and watch the show. OK, every single one of these reenactments, all four of them have a training aspect to it. And I would argue just as importantly a public relations aspect to well, it. Well, it's almost like a ledge affairs aspect, right? It's, it's as much ledge affairs as it is PR. If you got lawmakers there, we're talking about, you know, funding for the Marine Corps and understanding what the Marine Corps is and just awareness and, and, and visibility. It's like Marine Corps biz dev. 100%. Yes. Well, there's a very cool yes. picture on page 40 of Lejeune standing with a civil war vet uh, and we, uh, you know, and with the passage of time, we don't think about how long did Civil War vets live after 1865. Um, and again, when I went to Gettysburg, I, I was reacquainted with some of the reunions that they had there uh, in, in later years uh, with, uh, I guess it was even on FDR's watch that uh, a bunch of them came together for the last time to, uh, uh, for the official battlefield park and some of the different things. And, uh, but this picture particularly with Lejeune, he's got a stogie and, and this, this union uh, guy is pointing with his, his outfit on and he's wearing a medal. So it's just a really classic photo. Yeah. So I yeah. point that out for the audience as well. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons why these reenactments were brilliant. I mean, on top of training and PR, um, the Civil War was a very, very popular subject back then. Civil War veterans were still walking around, obviously. I mean, um, Civil War veterans attended these reenactments. It was a great way to connect the Marine Corps and the men of the Marine Corps to this idea that the United States still produces men the caliber of which fought the Civil War, right? Yeah, That was yeah. a very, very important part of this. It's sort of a thread between generations kind of a thing. Yes, Absolutely. And I mean, and I mean, Lejeune's generation, his father was fought in the Civil War. He's from Point Capi, Louisiana. Um, he, 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 he grew up on an old plantation. Um, so this was this was not far removed from him or his memory at all. He was born in 1867. So this was a very important connection with the rest of society or at least a good a, a significant portion of society. So as we get close to the end of the show here, I'll just point out that footnote 12 
is as much as any reason to become a member of the Naval Institute. It's for access to the, the archives. And footnote 12 is what I would call the definitive article of his tenure as commandant mm-hmm. being part of the proceedings uh, bylines. It's called the U.S. Mm-hmm. Marine Corps Present and Future, um, which seems like a sort of de facto, matter of fact, almost pedestrian title. But that's the one that I point out to young junior officers uh, in the Marine Corps when I talk to them today that they should take a look at. Um, that's mm-hmm. the definitive Marines participating in the independent forum that is the Naval Institute example right there, number number 12 in your footnote. So again, that's a pitch for being a member because then you can read that article by accessing right. our digital archives, right? <laughs> right. I like how you did that. So that's, that's it's, it's what I do. It's kind of a thing I do. Um, so uh, Mark, what, what would you say if you had to pick one thing, and we've talked about some of the parallel paths and some of the different elements of his tenure is, is coming up. What is his legacy? Obviously, he's a huge name in the Marine Corps, um, but but what is his legacy? Several, but I have to pick one thing. You know, we've, we've mentioned the amphibious uh, warfare um, direction he was, he was leading the Marine Corps. That's important. Um, you know, we mentioned the force structure of the Marine Corps. That's important. He reorganized the uh, headquarters. That's important. Education was a big deal. That's important. However, the one thing that I think is most important is the standards of Marine Corps decorum, and I guess his emphasis on character, I think, is what's most important for him. He kind of set the standard between the relationship between officers and enlisted, you know, teachers and scholars and that kind of thing. But he was also very, very paternalistic in his leadership. He saw the Marine Corps as like a family, okay? And, and his, you know, the Marines under his charge is like his children, you know? He would do anything for them. He loved, he led them. And um, However... Implied behind that paternalistic relationship is this idea is that if, if the child errs and goes wrong, it is the parent's job to discipline said child. Okay. I think Lejeune would be appalled today at some of the things that Marines have done in the past decade, especially regarding Marines United. I think he would be appalled at the way female at the way female midshipmen were treated at at, um at the naval academy especially when they first started going there i think he would be appalled at not not at the marine corps i don't think he would be appalled at the marine corps i think he would be appalled by the behavior of certain marines okay um because he was such a big proponent of of faithfulness he was such a big proponent of honor and honesty and integrity uh, taking care of each other, keeping faith with one another. Um, he emphasized the spiritual in war, and he would know because he led a division in World War One. Okay, he led both army, both uh, soldiers and marines. He he's the guy who would know. Um, I think to me that's probably what's most significant. Fantastic. Right? The Marine Corps' missions could change; their mission sets can change. But that if 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 Marines want to keep the trust they have with the American public, they need to be able to police themselves very well and make sure that the Marines uh, are acting to a certain standard, okay? Uh, and treating each other with respect. And I, yeah, that, that, that would be my answer. Okay, that that's, would a, be my that's answer. a great answer. So the author is Mark Fultz. The article is The Revolutionary Tenure of Commandant Lejeune. It's in the current issue of Naval History Magazine. Mark, thanks for being on the Proceedings Podcast today. Ward, Eric, thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Love talking about Lejeune in the Marine Corps. So thank you for the opportunity. 
Thank you. So that'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you next time.